Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the resurrection of our Savior. Lord, I can't comprehend what it must have been like to see the empty tomb. Lord, we read about it, but the awe and wonder that must have been in the hearts of those who saw you die, but then saw you rise again. Lord, we thank you that we're the beneficiaries of your resurrection. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus came out of the grave and gave us hope. And I pray today would be an encouraging day. That it wouldn't just be another day on the calendar, but that you would encourage our hearts today to be sustained and encouraged and empowered to live for you. Lord, as the word of God is opened in Sunday school and in the main service, I pray that you would empower your teachers give them your spirit, and that you would give all of us ears to hear and also hearts that are desiring to obey. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study of First Peter. So if you want to open up your Bibles, a couple of weeks ago I introduced First Peter chapter 2. And we began covering verses 4 and 5, and that's what we're going to spend our time on today. But because I missed a couple of weeks, and because some of what I said before is foundational to what I'm going to say today, I'm going to reiterate a few points. I'm just going to read this first section of 1 Peter chapter 2, and then give some background review, and then I'll get into today's material. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As I introduced this section last time that I taught, I mentioned to you that chapter 2 at the beginning is really a strong exhortation. Those first three verses are one sentence, all around a command, as it were, to long for the Word of God. This entire letter was written to beleaguered Christians, some who were doing real hardship, they were being unfairly persecuted, they were being treated very poorly, they had difficult lives in many respects because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and Peter wanted to encourage them, but also exhort them. And so, after having extolled the virtues that they had in Christ, he gave a series of commands that really could be summed up around the idea of be holy as God is holy. A lot of the book, if you sum it up, it comes back to this. He's telling us how to be holy, and he's telling it to people who were not living in a museum. They were living in the real world. Things were hard. And so as he comes to chapter 2, he reminds them that they have to lay aside all of these sinful heart attitudes, particularly amongst believers, and desire for the Word, because the Word is how they're going to grow. But then after several exhortations, some imperatives at the end of chapter 1, this exhortation at the beginning of chapter 2 that has an imperatival force, it's something you have to do, he kind of steps into a little sidebar of theology. 
in verses 4 through 10, he's not really commanding that we do something. Rather, he's just explaining some things to us. And he's explaining some things that help believers think rightly. Ultimately, he's already talked about the fact that your minds are a centerpiece of this. In chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. There's a sense, I believe, in which the theology that he's teaching in verses 4 through 10 are about preparing your minds. And when we look at the scriptures and we look at our lives, we realize that even though in many respects as Americans we have it easy, at least from the standpoint of society as a whole, society is increasingly hostile to us. At least it's increasingly hostile to our views. It's interesting at Easter time to read secular opinion columnists. I keep track of a few major newspapers, not because I am enamored with them, because I realize what's in those newspapers is what's going to wind up on TV for the vast majority of people to consume. So if you want to find out what's going to be on the news, you can read a few of these East Coast newspapers and you'll realize that there's nothing new. They're just parroting the same things over and over. But it's interesting to see secular people or nominal believers deal with Easter. Read one article by someone who was suggesting that liberals just need to go back to church because all the liberal churches are dying and it'd be good for America if they would just go back and prop those churches up even if they don't believe. Then I read another article, even I can't remember if it was last night or this morning, that was just talking, it was an interview, and it was just talking about how, of course, all of this stuff is not true. Nobody could really believe in a virgin birth, and nobody could really believe somebody could rise from the dead. And, but, you know, it's good moral teachings. It's like, what? The guy's a liar if he didn't. <laughs> Jesus claimed to be God. What do you mean he's a good moral teacher? He's the biggest liar in history if you take that anti-supernaturalist bent. But the point is, there were times in the past that American culture and Christianity had a good flow going along. People didn't object to the general principles. That time has passed, and more and more we are marginalized. But as I began to talk about verses 4 and 5, I summarized it, and I had a little three-point outline. We only got into the first point, but I just had it as a breakdown, helpful thoughts and hurtful times. Because it is hard at times to be ridiculed and mocked. I don't know of many people that enjoy being thought of as fools or being laughed at. But we don't have to worry about that if we think correctly. So let me reread verses 4 and 5 because I started verse 4 last time. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's interesting is he's not really telling us to do anything. He's just explaining something that's already occurring. And the first helpful thought, and this is what I'll try and briefly review is that the world's opinion of Jesus is not what matters. So when you read those articles where people are foolishly talking about Jesus, when you read the articles that people are dismissing everything about him, what the world thinks of Jesus really is not what matters. Because verse 4 says something very important. 
We're to come to Jesus. It's not a command. It's saying we're already doing this and coming to him. And we come to him because we have the privilege of doing that. I taught in depth that in the Old Testament era and prior to this, you come near to God, you probably would die, and yet the throne of God is available to us. So we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And so Peter is just assuming that's what believers are already doing. We're coming to him as to a living stone. Now, we celebrate Easter because he is alive. I'm going to be teaching in children's ministry this morning, but when I did announcements on Easter, I always started out and said, He is risen. Thank you. I know we don't normally have interaction, but you've got to do that one. But the point is, He's alive. So, living stone, the living part we understand. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. But stone is not a rock in the field. It's a carefully prepared building material. And I went through that for a bit, but it's not just a haphazard rock that you would see laying around. It's a carefully prepared material, and he is a cornerstone. Everything's built around him. But my first point was based on this. He's been rejected by men. Obviously, that's why there's Good Friday, because he was killed. He was rejected. But he rose again. But the rejection of men was not relevant because it said, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. God esteemed him highly. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God accepted Jesus' payment for sins because he was pleased with him. Ultimately, as we think about things... The rejection of the world is insignificant. It might be a nuisance. It might result in some persecution. In our prayer time this morning, we were sharing prayer requests for Susie's brother in Bolivia, brother and sister-in-law, and there's ongoing harsh persecution and falsehood and lies. But whatever the world thinks, at the end of the day, it's what does God think? Because God's the judge, not the world. So my first point, and that's sort of the end of our review, just summarizing things, is that the world's opinion of Jesus is not what matters. But a second helpful thought in a hurtful time is this. Being God's child makes you part of something bigger than yourself. Being God's child makes you part of something bigger than yourself. And this is not an Easter message per se, but Easter is part and parcel of this. And I pray that you're as encouraged when I'm done as I was after reading and studying and reflecting on this. Because verse 4 made it clear that Jesus, the living stone, even though he was rejected by the world, was choice and precious in the sight of God the Father and the first words of verse 5 in English, at least, are comforting. You also. You also. You also as living stones. Again, I can't think of anything much more encouraging than this. We are identified 
with Christ. If Jesus is choice and precious in the sight of God, and we also are choice and precious in the sight of God, particularly comforting when we're rejected by men and we're rejected by the world and our views are marginalized. But again, when I started studying this, these words are not unfamiliar in the sense of you hear something and it's like, oh, I've heard something like that before. But the picture being painted is much more expressive. But there's a lot of gospel truth in this little sentence. You also as living stones. I first want to key in on the word living. These are times where as you think through theology, not only do you have the ability to think through again what happened to you, but for every one of us here, it should give us a greater ability to communicate the reality of the gospel to someone else. We understand Jesus is a living stone because he died on the cross. He was dead. And then he rose again. I'm pretty certain that there's nobody in this room that was died and put in a tomb. And yet we're living stones as well. But if you've been around Christianity, you understand where this is going. According to Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I think this concept is a stumbling block for most people. I know I have witnessed two people. And at the end of the day, they say, what's the deal? I'm not that bad. (laughs) What do you mean I'm going to be judged? Why? Look around the world. All these people that are killing and raping and plundering and doing all these. I'm not that way. I'm not so bad. It's hard to tell somebody who thinks they're better than most people that they're dead. And yet, that's what the scriptures teach. Fascinating. Churches today fill up. I mean, driving here, I pass a lot of churches. There's extra police cars out today directing traffic. Churches fill up and they're not coming because they think, you know what, I'm dead. I want to go to church. In fact, they feel pretty good today. It's a happy day. You got a good lunch coming. Somewhere you're going to have egg salad sandwiches. I don't know when. It's either today or tomorrow. I know there's a lot of chocolate that's going to be consumed. I mean, what, what do you mean? Yet, churches are going to be full today of dead people. And some places are going to proclaim the truth to them. And some people are going to soothe them so that they're Dead slumber is not disturbed. Yet we know that Easter wasn't just an historical event that occurred one time. We understand, if you know Jesus Christ, you understand that in one sense you had a personal Easter because there was at some moment when you were dead and the Spirit made you alive. If you get discouraged, if you get down, if you get depressed, just go and read Ephesians 2. It's so encouraging. 
Ephesians 2, 4 and 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even though we did not literally die like Jesus did shedding blood, we were as dead spiritually as anyone could be. And God made us alive. So when we're referred to as living stones, we understand we were dead. Now we are alive. And what's fascinating again is this idea of stones. It's not just a rock in the field. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. This brings the imagery all together. I indicated to you Jesus was a living stone. He was carefully prepared by God. That's the imagery. If you have ever seen someone quarry rocks, I was watching some historical show um, that had these big quarries from ancient times. You understand people take chisels and they carve and they move and they get things just exactly right. And that's the picture here for us. Each one of us, whatever our background, however old we are, whatever our physical frailties, whatever our mental abilities, whatever our family status, God, if you know Jesus Christ, has chosen you and He has prepared you perfectly to fit together with all the other believers. God is building a spiritual house his family, and God is the architect, and He is the builder. Our being built up is not something we're doing, it's something God is doing. God is doing the work in us. And here is where you and I, as individual believers, can see our place in something far bigger than ourselves. If we're able to, once in a while, we can look beyond our own issues. That's hard for every one of us. It's hard for me, because I'm dealing with me. But when we step back, we realize that the Lord's doing something far greater. We're not just a pile of rubble. We're carefully prepared and God is preparing us to go exactly where he wants us. Again, we are not a famous church. I've been around churches where you could see famous people. That's not us. I've been around churches with a lot of very prominent people. That's not us. We're just not. We're not that important. I think for most of us, if we disappeared, the seven other billion people on the earth wouldn't even know. I mean, our families would be sad. We would be sad. But guess what? The world's going to keep revolving. Commerce isn't going to stop. The government's not going to fall. We just aren't that important. Except that we are. Except that God placed His love upon us. And God does have something for each one of us far greater than our earthly importance. As I was thinking through this imagery that all of us, because when I'm preparing to teach, I'm thinking of your faces. I'm thinking of my family. I'm thinking of our church. 
I think at times of churches that we were a part of before. I, I can't think of these things in the abstract. I think of them as affecting each one of us, real people. And I was thinking this through, and I was thinking of what God is doing with us as the raw materials. And part of the imagery went back to something that happened in high school. My dad died in 1984. I was in my junior year of high school. But before that, when I was a teenager, at one point, he bought an old building. But he bought an old building after it had been torn down because he wanted the bricks. So where he worked, they had a brick building, and he had a vision one day to use those bricks. But when he bought them, they were just a pile of rubble. And so somehow, I don't remember the details, my mom would, he had them hauled on a truck out to my granny and grandpa's farm. My mom's parents lived in Perry. They had 12 acres, and there was a big pile of bricks. So this old building was torn down, and it wound up on granny and grandpa's farm. And I was my dad's only son, and my sisters were gone by then, and he thought it would be a good idea for me to clean those bricks. (laughs) And for three cents a brick... If I could clean it without it being broken, and I could get all the concrete off of it, I would get three cents. That's a hard way to make 20 bucks when you're in high school. But I can remember, it was just a big pile. It was probably as big, you know, as this much, and it was a jumble of mess. Some of the bricks were in big chunks that had come together. Some were laying apart. I spent the first weeks looking for the isolated bricks because they didn't require any work. But the point was, it was just big mess and jumble. And then over a period of time, it's the summer in Florida, it starts raining and the grass grows and there's weeds around. It's just a mess. That probably would describe us as unbelievers. We're just a mess. Just a pile of nothing in a field. But God... And it cost a lot more than three cents. Sent his son to redeem us. And he knew what he needed to build his house. And he prepared each one of us carefully. And he knew we were going to fit right around the cornerstone. Jesus. And he's still building 2,000 years later. He's building exactly what he wants. God is doing the work and He's using us even though we're not that significant. It's interesting, the the terminology used, the word used of our being built up is similar when Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church. He's doing that in part with us. When you think of it that way, our individual significance, we're being joined together with all these other living stones, carefully prepared, put in exactly the right place, and we're a part of something that's far greater than this world could ever understand. We're a part of God's house. Now, it's a spiritual house, of course. It's not a literal house. But it's as real as anything that exists. It's as real as that brick facade over there. It's as real as anything you can see with your eyes. We are a part of that. And each one of us has a part to play. 
let me encourage you this Easter Sunday. You're a part of something that matters. And it's far bigger than any one of us individually. And if you think your part in the spiritual house that God is building is less important than Pastor Steve or me or any of the other elders, you're wrong. We have different parts to play, but God loved you just as much and he prepared something just as special for you. Turn, if you will, for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of you would be familiar with this, and sometimes I just read scriptures, but I want you to find it in your Bible or on your electronic device, and I want you to make a note of it, and I want you to think about it. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read just from verses 12 down to 27. It's a lengthy section, but it's important. And what it does is it reiterates that God has a place for every single one of us and it matters. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Just pause for a second and think about that. Because that applies to you, that applies to me. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundance to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You could keep reading. But sometimes people think of Lakeside and they see Steve Kreloff and he's important. But he's not Lakeside. He's a part of it. He's an important part of it. We should pray for him always. But you guys are just as important. God has prepared you to be here. I don't think a lot about some things that I can't know for certain. Sometimes people say, well, what about? And I don't think about it too much because I just realize I'm never going to get somewhere. But I do think about heaven. 
And I do think about what it will be like. And, and I don't know fully when the believers receive their rewards, how the rest of us will interact. I don't know if we'll all see. I don't understand all of that. I do know from Scripture that God will honor His children for their faithfulness. And I can say this. I think in heavens, in heaven, a lot of accolades will go to people that nobody ever heard of. We all think of the giants of the faith. We can go back hundreds of years and we have big names. I think in heaven, there's going to be a lot more attention paid to people we never heard of. Even if you think you're a nobody, God saved you for a reason. There is no closet at Lakeside where we stack up people that aren't important. If you feel that way, it's a poor understanding. And it's our fault for not having communicated better. But God saved you and he made you of part of something bigger than yourself. Now the whole idea of a spiritual house is really, I think, a contrast with the literal temple. When we studied through the book of Hebrews, I talked a lot about that. There was a strong affection for the temple itself. That building had a pull on people and the writer of Peter is making a similar point to the writer of Hebrews in the sense of what we're a part of isn't a literal place. We're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And the idea is that God is doing something different under the new covenant. Each one of us is a priest before God. Not in the Roman Catholic sense. But part of what God is doing in building up his house is he's making a multitude of priests to serve him. You see that word holy again. Throughout this book, it's going to come back. Be holy as I am holy. That's our call. On Easter, confess areas of your life where you're not being holy and strive to be holy. But ultimately, understand this, that there is a concept that's called the priesthood of all believers, that is an immense privilege for us. In the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi was set apart, and they were the only ones that could minister. And then within the tribe of Levi, there was a great high priest who one day, one, once a year, could go into where the presence of God was. There was this big barrier between God and men. And that barrier is gone because of Christ. I think it's fascinating if you read church history. The veil of the temple was torn in two and immediately people tried to start stitching it back together. Put Roman Catholicism in. That's what a lot of Orthodox faiths are. They've put the priest up and you can't get to God except through the priest. That's not true. Every one of us has direct access. Every one of us has a place as a holy priesthood before the Lord. You've been carefully prepared you have a special place. It may not seem important. It may not seem like the greatest location. You might have wished that God would have put you into a different wall on the building. But the fact remains, each one of us is right where God wants us to be. And praise the Lord that each one of us on this Easter Sunday, for example, can go straight to God. There's no barriers. So let me quickly get our final thought, because I'm running out of time. Helpful thoughts and hurtful times. The world's opinion of Jesus is not what matters. Being God's child makes you part of something bigger than yourself. Number three, 
God gives you the privilege of serving him in innumerable ways. What an Old Testament priest did was he offered sacrifices. If you read through the Old Testament, that's where everybody's daily Bible reading dies with the Old Testament sacrifices. You just couldn't get past another flower offering and another animal. And if you don't have enough money for this animal, you do that animal. But it was very specific of worship. The worship now of this priesthood of which we are a part is different. It's spiritual sacrifices. Obviously not offered hypocritically like the Pharisees. They are ones offered through Jesus Christ. But they are many. I'll just give you some first references if you want to write them down. There are more. But Romans 12.1, we're told to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Philippians 4.18, the giving of funds to help someone in need was considered a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Hebrews 13.15, there's a sacrifice of praise that comes from our lips. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. There's going to be a lot of sacrificing of praise in a few moments. Philippians 2.17, even those believers who are called and they serve and their lives are going to be poured out. Paul talked about a drink offering that was a sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, being imitators of God, walking in love, was an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Here's the point. All these little things that you do that may not be noticed by anybody matter to God. You're serving Him. You're offering spiritual sacrifices to Him when you do those things. Let me encourage you today. As you reflect on Easter, make it very, very personal. I pray that you've already been doing that. But it's easy to think of Jesus coming out of the grave for all those other people. But if you know Christ, He came out of the grave for you. He had your name in mind. And when He saved you, It was for something bigger than you. And that work continues, and we praise the Lord that we get to be a part of it. Let me close our time in prayer. I see people lining up outside the doors. Happy Easter. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the privilege we have of being your children. And I thank you, Lord, that you use unimportant people like us. You're building your kingdom, you're building your church, and we thank you that we have a part to play. And we pray this morning that our hearts would be filled with gratitude for the fact that you rose again for us. And each one of us could see that it was for me personally. I pray that everyone here today would be encouraged. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.